0: The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.
1: Of business, and I'm your host Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We have Ed Ludwig on the line with us right now. He is the former chairman of the board, president, and CEO of Beck Dickinson BD, a global medical technology company that serves healthcare institutions, life science researchers, clinical laboratories, industry, and the general public. They manufacture a broad range of medical supplies, devices, lab equipment, and diagnostic products and are headquartered in Franklin in Lakes, New Jersey, with offices in more than 50 countries worldwide. Ed joined BD in 1979, and he was named president of the company in 99, CEO in 2000, and elected chairman in February 2002. He was chairman until just this past June, and during his tenure, BD more than doubled its revenues and more than tripled its net income and nearly tripled its market capitalization. Welcome, Ed.
0: Good to to be here, Chrissy. Good to be on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us i really uh I really appreciate it, and I know our audience does um, great. so let's start let's start uh by talking about the company a little bit and giving our listeners a little bit of a background on on Beckton Dickinson
0: great happy to do that well Beckton Dickinson was started by Mr. Beckton and Mr. Dickinson in eighteen ninety seven <laughs> um, there were two the, the legend has it, two salesmen met in the train station and uh struck up a a friendship one of them sold medical supplies the other one sold office supplies and we're all happy that over a hundred years later they however they did it they decided to move in the medical field Um, you have to think about what's happening in medical uh... circles in the united states in eighteen ninety seven and it's not a lot i mean uh... it was a pretty crude by today's uh... standards Um so basically the two founders and their two sons ran the company from eighteen ninety seven right through nineteen seventy seven and i think the company is most known for in the fifties and sixties moving uh... i think the backbone of the company is moving in the direction of sterile, single-use safe effective disposable medical products you know so we make thirty billion needles a year for use all over the world over the last uh... several decades in addition to this kind of what i would call core medical supplies we've moved into some very sophisticated although easy to use diagnostics for infectious disease cancer etc and also some tools for enabling research. So that's kind of the backbone of the company. Is we help people live healthy lives. About sixty percent of our revenue is XUS, and um, and we're we're managing the end also of a hundred year old company with uh, good sound traditions, and also obviously medical science is changing on a, on a daily basis. So we have to stay current with the the challenges of a global uh, scientifically driven healthcare market.
1: Absolutely. How many employees are are at BD?
0: We have twenty nine thousand employees. Okay. And as I said, about half of them, more than half of them, live and work outside the United States. Right. Um, and uh, and and obviously, uh, we have a, about twenty percent of our revenue comes from what we would call emerging markets, which is China, India, Latin America, mm. uh, and Africa. And that's a very exciting part of our business as well. Probably the most global of all of our kindred spirits in the medical technology space. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. So you have been, um, and I'm going to refer to Beckton Dickinson as BD, which it is is very often referred to just for audience um, purposes. Um, BD, you've been there for your entire career. And this certainly comes as a real advantage in terms of being able to gauge the culture of a company and what is working and what is not working. What kind of company did you actually inherit in 1999 as president and then in 2000 as CEO?
0: Well, BD is a company that, again, has been really focused on driving human healthcare on a global basis. You know, by 99, we had frankly gotten our story a little bit ahead of reality. You know, we were very aspirational. We were very enthusiastic about where we were going. But unfortunately, we, um, you know, in terms of managing shareholder expectations, I'm going to come back to this. Mm -hmm. I have told our folks over the years, you know, I've never missed an analyst number. The only numbers I miss are the ones I make for myself. So if you miss a number, it's your number, and if the analyst has the number, it's because you let them have that number. So we we, we, we were a little bit more uh, aggressive than we probably should have been in terms of what the business was capable of doing in the short run. We had lost a little bit of credibility. Uh, we were a little bit off our off our track. I mean, you got a good, solid company. We're not, we're not talking about losing money here or, you know, being in, in, in threat of uh, financial Uh, harm. But, you know, with respect to Wall Street and even our investor base and customer base, we were a little bit um, uh, lacking in credibility. So we really needed to kind of get our basic house in order. Although Mm -hmm. the company, again, had very strong values and very strong franchises. And as a result of this, and I, and I know, um, perhaps your listeners would be interested in this As a result of this, one of the first things I needed to do as as a new CEO, now I couldn't, I couldn't blame my predecessor because I was part of the management team that got us to the state <laughs> of affairs, so blaming your predecessor is not was not part of the program. So we had to, what I would call, uh, confront the brutal facts and say, you know, what's really going on with this company? Uh, what are we strong at? What do we need to develop better? And we conducted what our, uh, my colleague Mike Beer calls a, a fitness profile. We, we, we engaged about a dozen of our top next-level high-potential executives uh, from all over the world. We sent them out to interview some of their colleagues, 20, 30, 40 people, bring back to us honest, candid feedback about what's going on with the company, what's right, what's wrong, and bring that back to my leadership team and me allow us to confront the brutal facts and get on with it. This, this, this process really allows you to see what the truth is in the organization. And uh, that's the first thing I did in, in 2000 as, as CEO. And perhaps I could tell you a little bit about, you know, a couple of things we learned.
1: I would love to hear that. And that, that you know, of course, is not going outside of the company and getting a, a consultancy to come in. This is really going and tapping into your internal,
0: internal team. Exactly, exactly. I can't emphasize that more. Now, the only consultancy we use and we've used folks like Mike Beer up at Harvard not as a he, he wasn't there to provide us with answers. He was there to help us run the process. Right. But exactly. over years we learned how to run the process ourselves. But you're absolutely correct. You don't need a consultant to tell you what's wrong with the company. Your own people know what's wrong with the company. You need to harness a way and find a way to listen to them. I I refer to this and Mike refers to it as a speaking truth to power. I didn't coin the phrase. It actually has more of a historical reference to um, uh, way back. But, you know, th- there is truth going on in the organization, and I think you see when co- organizations go off the rails and when they get into trouble, and we've seen that, you know, it's in the popular press and the business press over the last years, yeah. uh, it's because the executives in the company, the leadership, get insulated to what's really going on. They, um, they, they don't hear the truth. So one of the things we heard about was that we were engaged in a huge uh, ERP upgrade. In fact, I had started the upgrade as when I was CFO of the company, and this was now, expi- explain
1: to our listeners what ERP is.
0: Well, uh, enterprise resource planning. It's it's think okay. of it as a giant information systems upgrade. Um, you know, it, it, it we happen to use SAP. You can use other vendors, but you basically redefine all of the work systems in the company, and you build an information system. To to service it, it's an enormous undertaking. In fact, we're we're going through it again now, you know, you know, 15 years later, as as part of an upgrade. But because of the nature of this uh, this this project, it was it was not being well run. It was, uh, you know, these projects have famously had had the opportunity to to shut companies down because if you don't get it right, all your computer systems don't work right. You can virtually shut the company down. So these are very serious problems. And we heard one of the things we heard was that. You know, we needed to get this back on track. The other thing we needed to, to address was our whole supply chain. We had, again, in those days, uh, been promulgating certain distributor promotions and, and put a lot of variability into the supply chain, and we needed to fix that. And so, you know, there, was, there were some very candid very actionable, very specific things. Many of them uh, I could attribute to the things that I did uh, in my prior life as president and CFO of the company. So my first sort of reality check was, what is Ed going to do with this tough message? Mm-hmm. And fortunately, we, we, we slept on it. We had a good discussion over it. And I said, you know what? I own this. We're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so right away, within six months of taking over as CEO, we commissioned this task force. We heard the brutal facts. And we dealt with it. We started dealing with it. And I think right then and there, the organization said, you know what? These folks are uh, intellectually honest. They're emotionally committed. And, um, and they're not uh, you know, sticking their heads in the sand. And so it, it, it tends to really get a positive motivation in the organization. Uh, and, again, if you can find a, a constant feedback of good, accurate information and then deal with it, uh, then you're in good shape. The other thing that we did very early on, I asked every one of the people who work for me, to come to meetings uh, thinking of the company first and think second of what it was that they were in charge of so if you have uh, five people running different business lines uh, somebody running finance somebody running uh, hr yes that's what you're doing but when you're sitting in this meeting talking about beckton dickinson talking about bd issues i want you to have that bd on bd hat on first and foremost and that was a mind change that was a, 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 a perceptive change and, uh, and some people were able to deal with it. In fact, most, some people on our team were not able to cross that, uh, that, that boundary line, that Rubicon, and they ended up leaving the company. They said, I, that's not where I am. I'm in you know, sort of in this for me, and I'm in this for my function or my business. And, and so they sort of self-selected out of the company. So that was yeah. the other major thing that we really had to get at. And all of this has to do with confronting the brutal facts and dealing with what's going on in the company. Once you've got that, solving the problems becomes a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that, then you don't know where to go. It's like having an illness in your body and not having proper diagnosis, and then you're not going to get proper treatment.
1: Exactly, exactly. Now, is this all part of the BD University?
0: Well, BD University, well, actually one of the other things we heard in that first profile session, that fitness session, was that we were not developing the next generation. We were not Mm -hmm. making sufficient investments in executive development. And so we did create BD University, uh, which was owned and operated by BD. We had a small number of uh, uh, BD leaders, uh, professional trainers, so to speak. There was a fellow named Ed Betoff, who was mm-hmm. uh, sort of world class uh, organizational development and training guy. In fact, he's doing this down at the University of Pennsylvania now in his retirement. He was the dean of the BD University. And he had a couple of professionals working with him, but the, the, the backbone of BD University was what we called, uh, with Ed's help, leaders as teachers. So that, yes, you need some professionals to put the programs together and administer it, but by and large, the teachers were BD leaders who were expected to give up X number of days and weeks a year, uh, manageable, but it's a sacrifice of their time to come and teach in our leadership development programs. And that has a dual effect. Number one is the people in the program, the students, so to speak, are now hearing firsthand from BD leaders what's expected of a BD leader. You know, you have to be honest, forthright, creative, vision, deliver on your fact, on your on your commitments, live the BD values, develop your people, and so to hear that from you know someone at a university or someone from outside is one level of commitment, but to hear it from the leaders themselves, I think, is a whole new level of commitment. Right. And the second thing is that the leaders were able to hear from the students. What's again, it's, you can't have too many conduits into the institution. That's, that's bringing you new facts and engagement. So during every one of these BD University programs, inevitably the students would have some insights upward to the teachers, so to speak, and say, well, this is what's going on in the company. This is what we're struggling this This is what's working. This is what we need to do better. And so you really, uh, the byproduct of BD University was a, um, uh, a, a next generation of leaders is really starting to move along, and B, this dialogue of continuous engagement and continuous improvement was facilitated.
1: Okay. Now, and, and I have done a little bit of research on BD University, so I, I know and, and I think that this is a really important piece of this is that you are actually one of the teachers.
0: Yes, I was. I tried and, to, particularly in our leadership, you know, we, we BD University encompassed everything from sales training to ethics to you name it, but the backbone of it was clearly what we called our leadership development program, LDP, and advanced leadership development, which was, you know, sort of the 101 and the 202 and the 303 of our, of our what we expect from leaders. And I made sure that I was in every one of those sessions to give a little talk, but mostly to engage them in questions and uh, what we call town hall meetings.
1: Well, sure, and it certainly sends a message if the CEO is finding time to, to teach, then employees can find time to show up. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, all right. So let's let's talk about let's talk about higher ambition leadership. Um, this is a big piece of it, and I have, as you know, Michael Beer on the show, and I've been doing a series this month um, uh, showcasing leaders and, and and the work that that you've done and they have done. Um, the notion of, of higher one of the notions of higher ambition leadership is that it really isn't about you; it's about the company, as as we've been talking about. Um, do you feel? that more often not it's 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 you find it that you're in your interaction with CEOs that it's really difficult for them to grasp this concept are you seeing progress being made in this realm with the CEOs that are out there and then the upcoming generation
0: well maybe i self select but the the, the the group that i've uh, i've really affiliated with over the years so i have a natural affiliation obviously within the medical technology industry i chaired our trade association i was on that industry board for for uh, for the better part of 12 years I'm definitely seeing uh, the current generation and the next generation of leaders getting this. Um, and I think they're getting it in two ways. One is you could you could learn by other people's negative behaviors and examples. And these uh, sort of egotistical, self-centered, me-first kinds of CEOs are just, just not successful. They may be successful for some period of time, but over a long poll you'll see that almost every one of them uh, derails in one way or another. It's part of human nature. Um, the other thing I think they're doing is they're learning from each other. So, you know, I'm a member of a group called the Management Executive Society. I'm a member of the trade association. There's just by by virtue of affiliating with folks at the National Association of Corporate Directors. As you say, Mike Beer has a group of of CEOs that are now starting to gather at what he calls the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership (CHL). Um, And, uh, you know, folks like uh, Doug Conan from Campbell Soup and uh, Dick Lochner from uh, United Stationers. And I'm seeing that they're getting this. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, and some of this, again, you can cite many different references. Um, uh, Jim Collins is one who who started writing about this years ago. And Jim has done a lot of work with BD Mm -hmm. over the years, one-on-one. And his notion of this uh, level five leader who is ambitious for the company. And for the success, I mean, you even find this in military training. You know, officers and military are trained to be focused on the mission and each other. You know, help each other out. Don't leave a comrade behind. It's all about the mission. It's all about, you know, finishing what we started out to do. So you, you see, great institutions are externally focused, and the leader is, as we think of it, is a privilege. It's, it's a call. It's a privilege, and to, to, to refer to it as a calling, maybe, maybe a little bit much, but it, it's a privilege. To synthesize and and to bring the organization to its next level of performance, and that's how I thought of myself over the 12 years. I said, "This is a 100, almost almost 120 year old institution, and what am I going to do? You know, how am I going to measure myself at the end of uh, 12 years? Is have we made progress on our journey to greatness?" Mm-hmm. And and in a, in a number of areas, I I could happily say yes. Uh, number one is the leadership team that we left behind. I think is very strong. Vince home homegrown sort of a combination of some newcomers and a lot of uh, multi-decade experiential people. I think the markets that we've started opening for ourselves are better. Uh, I would point to B. D. University as you've pointed out Chrissy is something that is producing uh, a, 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 um, an inventory so to speak a collection of higher ambition leaders who've learned uh, the way we learned that this is the right way to do it be externally focused so I'm very optimistic that there's a bunch of um newer CEOs and leaders coming along that are embracing this um, by their example by the way they're running the companies
1: That's great so let's talk about behavior here walking the talk um, you know which you clearly have been doing um, you're, you're you know I've, I've talked about this and actually last week in particular with Doug Stotler um, about being on display 24/7 it's just the natural nature of the beast when you're running an organization right. um, it'd be fun for for our listeners to learn, you know about some examples of how you regularly did walk the walk. Um, some stories, stories of employee, employee engagement would be fun for, for our listeners to hear.
0: Sure. Well, it, it, as you say, the word walk, is, it says it all. So um, part of the, the repertoire is you have to travel. You have to get out. Um, obviously, there are many different ways to communicate these days, with technology being what it is, satellite, Internet, you name it. But uh, I made a point of visiting BD sites on a, on a regular basis all over the world. Um, but, but do it in, in a way. In so when we visit, what do you do? You go, you go visit the plant. You walk the floor of the plant. You talk to people. You shake their hands. And at every stop along the way, myself or for that matter, any one of our leadership team would have what we call town hall meetings where we would get as many people as we could fit into a, a room or an auditorium or a space. Uh, the executive would give a few comments and then, and then answer questions. You know, and sometimes mm-hmm. in order to promote uh, candor, we we'd say we'll send the questions in anonymously on a piece of paper and we'll uh, we'll read them. So you know, standing up in a group of 300 people and asking a question sometimes takes a little bit of courage. Sure. And so that's uh, that's a very practical way. In fact, it, very interestingly, a year ago, May May of uh, of 11, we brought our whole board to uh, to China uh one of our growing uh, regions and uh and we we visited the plants we visited public health officials and on one day we did a panel where the board sat up on a a mini little stage and then we had a room of about 2 or 300 of our associates asking the board questions and the board would pass the microphone back and forth and answer questions and they you yeah, know that was a little bit of an act of uh, courage for them but they enjoyed it it's that kind of board and uh and uh, the people i can tell you you know, the board sometimes is this mysterious group of individuals, and then they meet six <laughs> times a year, and nobody knows what exactly they do. But I'll guarantee you, with this uh, with this process, and we just did the same thing in Sandy, Utah, in May. So we, the board gets out, and they meet with people, too. I can't emphasize enough how these higher-ambition companies need to be led and facilitated and, 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 and managed by higher-ambition higher boards. And uh, not enough of about that is being said, and I think that's actually, in my retirement, something I'm going to be focusing on. What is the role of a board mm. in, in not just allowing, but in promoting and encouraging higher ambition organizations?
1: Oh, that's great. And, and in terms of the, the people who wrote the anonymous notes, did you receive a lot of feedback from people who who, who really had something to say but didn't want to get up, and particularly in front of... In front of- a crowd of we, we
0: got a lot of good questions. Um, you know, in any uh, you know, you don't know what you've done sometimes until it's over. I can't tell you during the last six months. I stepped down as CEO last October. Vince Forlenza took over as CEO. It's our fiscal year beginning, and then I stepped down as chair just on Ju- July first. And so for about a six-month period, I was executive chair. And as I traveled around, it was one of those you know. Um, well, he's leaving, so maybe it's time to say something now. And, and I can't say <laughs> how many people re- recounted to me. Things that I had done or a note that I had sent them or uh, a greeting that I, you know, you, you, sometimes you take these things for granted or you, d- you don't think deeply about, you know, sending someone a congratulatory note if they got a special award. This mm-hmm. is something that Doug Conant does a lot at, at Campbell Soup, and it's a, a page I took from his book is, you know, in today's electronic age, to get a handwritten note from someone uh, is special. And so to, you know, the numbers of people who came up to me and said, geez, you know, you sent me a note two years ago, three years ago, or you greeted me, or you, you know, whatever. And it really, it really was important to me. And so sometimes it's not until you leave that you start hearing about some of these things. But yes, people, you know, if you ask a question, if you give people uh, a chance to speak, and then you acknowledge them, you don't even have to agree with them. People are very smart. That you don't have to agree with everything everyone says but just to know, A, I was heard and B, there was a response sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree um, is very motivational and, and, it, and it, yeah. then it creates a sort of a, a builder effect you know, a multiplier effect so that you know you get this uh, vir- virtuous cycle where the engagement and the communication accelerates and I know my, my successor, Vince Swarlenza, is very much a believer in this and he, he gets out a lot and has these town hall meetings and has these uh, constant uh, feedback loops.
1: Mm-hmm. And that must, that must be nice to actually know that that's continuing after you've, you know, moved on.
0: Absolutely is. Yep. And for the simple fact, you know, is that it works.
1: Sure, <laughs> and, sure.
0: And then stylistically, you'd really need people who are comfortable enough in their own skin to go out into forums like this because one of the, one of the hallmarks is every once in a while – You're going to get a question, the answer to which is, geez, you know what? I don't know, Uh, but I'll get back to you. I'll do some homework. Um, And I think that's refreshing for people, you know, at the end of the day. um, Absolutely.
1: Well, we're speaking with Ed Ludwig. He's the former chairman of the board, president and CEO of Becton Dickinson & Company. uh, BD. So, we've got a few more minutes left. I'd love to, to talk to you a little bit about the, the environmental, social aspect of, of the work at BD. How, how have you kept your, how did you keep your finger on the pulse of what was going on in this realm, and then adequately incorporate uh, suggestions and priorities of employees into the mission of BD in a timely manner?
0: Yeah, well, it, as I said before, uh, we're a blend of, um, I mean, all of the products we make are sophisticated. Some of them don't look at they're easy to use. So sometimes mm. something is so easy uh, to use it because of the sophistications built inside of it. You know, one of the things is that um, our hallmark of BD is we have very strong uh, local organizations. So our people in Africa and China and India are firsthand seeing what is needed there. And many times what's needed there is a slightly different solution than what's needed in Western Europe or in the United States, just in terms of medical sophistication. It, it, it needs more basic, robust. And so putting people on the ground, uh, having executives who are devoted to we call global health. So we created a whole global health initiative, which was directly aligned with Gary Cohen, who is now running our international and and venture kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they had a voice at the table. And inevitably, uh, you need a syringe, for example, in the immunization programs that self-destructs so that the syringe can't be reused uh, for... You know, a lot of times, you know, a a healthcare worker who isn't properly trained in a developing area would say, well, geez, this syringe looks perfectly good. Let's use it again to save some money. Right. we now have syringes that self-destruct. They they cannot be reused. That was a specific design that was spotted by our people in the field, communicated through our R&D organization, produced in our own manufacturing facilities for costs that are comparable to garden-variety syringes. Mm -hmm. And now these are saving lives by by virtue of not... uh, and so they're sustainable uh... yes we have philanthropy where we give money away or provide volunteer services which is another very motivational thing for our people they go out and actually serve as volunteers at our expense working in some of these regions um, which is another great idea but these are sustainable i mean so yes maybe the margins are them on them, or, or maybe not up to corporate averages but over time it's sustainable because we are making some 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 reasonable returns we put the money back into the business and you sustain and grow and sustain and grow. And right. but we also think we found out is that it's not just about the stuff we're selling, it's teaching the people, training healthcare workers, training nurses. And so what we leave behind is a healthcare system in Kenya or Zambia or wherever that is a more robust healthcare system. I mean it's sustainable. I mean you think about many many years ago polio was eradicated by virtue of a vaccine. Well, unfortunately, the problems we're facing today, HIV AIDS, malaria, uh, tuberculosis are not susceptible to these kind of you know one shot and you're you're cured kind of things. So you need a more robust public health system, and that's part of what we leave behind, and that makes us very excited.
1: Oh, so great. Um, I, I could talk to you for another half hour. Unfortunately, we have to we have to finish up. But um, thank you, Ed, so much for for taking the time. I know that uh, this was a conversation our listeners were very much looking forward to hearing about, and I I know. Um, that they learned quite a bit. So I, I so appreciate it and hope to meet you someday in person.
0: Okay, great, Chrissy. Now, this is, um, once you get me started, I could go for hours because it's just, as I said, it's a privilege to have served this company and to continue to talk oh, yeah. about it and uh, to know that it's still being run by people with a, with a common uh, passion, uh, just like me.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're thrilled to have had you on and, and hopefully we'll get you back on sometime soon. Thanks. Thank you.
0: The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com.